And he's God. He, he gets it. He knows what's coming. Because he's the one in the oneness of God that's dishing it out. The Father in the person of God the Father is dishing it out on, on he's pouring it out on God the Son. And I, I can't explain that. No one can. It doesn't matter. But he's God and he, and he really gets it and he knows what he's facing and he's, he's bleeding. Hello and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you this very day for the gift of your beloved Son. Men have spoken about it. Men have died for it. Men have argued and divided over the concepts portrayed and given in the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we're not here to do that today. We are here to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to quote Scripture, to examine Scripture, and then let it mean what you want it to mean in the hearts of the hearers and the speaker. Hide the speaker behind the cross that we might recognize your goodness in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would grant your love and your mercy and your goodness, you know, to be placed in our hearts. Lord, apart from you, we're empty, we're nothing. We're dust from the ground. You're the one who breathed life into our souls and we, into, our, into our bodies, and we became a living soul. You, uh, you take dead things and you impart life. And to this day, man can't define what life is. We know in the Holy Scriptures what it is. You are the eternal life. You are the source of life. You are life. We can't define you. We have your words of which we are grateful and thankful, by which you have uncovered, you have made and revealed and made known who you are in the person of Christ, in the names given in the word, in the way you lived your life as a man, in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's just so many things that you have revealed about yourself and apart from them. We have nothing. We're just in the dark. We're always in the dark. Just like we have no goodness or glory. It's just inherent is in God. We are just what you make us to be. Lord, let us hear that message today and give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This, uh, less this episode is episode 66 in this series, and the title of it is The Hope of Future Glory. The Hope of Future Glory. It's taken from assorted scriptures, um, main verse being Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known 
which is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me read that at least one more time, even though we're going to look at it. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested or revealed to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to begin with that concept of hope, the hope of glory. We'll go back and look at this verse in more detail, but the hope of glory, what is hope and why is it important? Let us look to the Bible for the answers. Romans chapter 8 and verse 24 and 25 says this, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is already what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So we're looking at the idea of hope from Romans 8, which says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hope for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. It's not difficult. The concepts are pretty clearly laid out in the verse. Hope is faith in the future. First, the Apostle Paul tells us, though, that hope that is seen is not hope. Just like the writer to Hebrews tells us regarding faith in chapter 11. And I'm saying that hope is faith in the future. And so faith in chapter 11 and verse 1 of, uh, I'm sorry, the writer to the Hebrews, uh, that Paul is saying just like that writer to the Hebrews in verse 1 of chapter 11, quote, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Godly faith or God-given faith has conviction attached to it. It is as if it were seen but only through the eyes of, of faith. So faith has an assurance, but it's assurance of things hoped for. Continuing in verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This is definitely not something we see with our eyes. We weren't there at creation, and even though we can see the creation now, we can't see that it was made out of things that are invisible, that are not visible. It was not made out of things which are visible. This is definitely not something you see. It's something you, you see only through the eyes of faith. Again in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Again, in verse 13, all these died in faith 
without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So first we're told that Noah's building a boat. I mean, there's no raining. There's no flooding up to this time. There are no large amounts of water on the earth, and he's building a boat, and they're laughing at him for 120 years. I mean, that's what saints do. But he had faith. And according to that faith that the rest of the world didn't have, he condemned the world. And in the same way, we're told that all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the way it is. You got the the haves and the have-nots. Those who receive God-given faith and believe the things that God says and promises and commands and acts and lives accordingly because uh, they've been changed. Again, in, in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So he offers by faith his son, or is prepared to offer his son Isaac. So God tells him, take your son's life. I mean, think about the question that had to go through his mind. Did I mean, did what I heard, was that a dream? Was that a vision? Could that possibly be true? God's telling me to kill his son? I mean, God who respects life the way he does, the way he's made that clear in my heart for all these years, he's pointing me in this direction, and now he's saying, take my son's life. I mean, that had to torment the soul. But you know what? He was willing to go ahead because he had been spoken to by God, and he recognized it was God, and he had to do what God said, even though it seemed crazy. This is God-given faith. Yet God is saving me through the offering of a lamb. I mean, really? You know, I mean, I mean, think that some of the things we take for granted that people have been asked to do, building a boat, you know, and there's no, I mean, things, and, and today it's no different. You're going to believe in the resurrection of a dead Jew from 2,000 years ago, and this is going to get you to heaven, really? He believed in the promise of the resurrection. We're told right there, that he believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. It's, it's, it's belief in the impossible. A camel can go through the eye of a needle? Come on. I mean, people have been changing Scripture for so long because they just can't deal with it. They just can't accept it as true. Believing that Jesus was raised from the dead separates people. It does. Death means the guilt of sinners. Jesus was put in the grave for our sins. The resurrection of Christ means it's out of our hands. God accomplished it on the cross. That's why he begins that whole passage that I read earlier. You know, it's, it's done. It's, it was a done deal. In Romans, for in hope we have been saved. I'll never forget the time I'm sitting in the doctor's office waiting for my wife to come out, and it occurred to me that I was reading through the book of Romans for the, like the first time, and it's like 
this is past tense. I'm worried about getting myself saved. And this is, uh, I have been saved. It's past tense. Really? Wow. I mean, it just illuminated my soul. It gave me purpose for living. It gave me hope. It gave me hope. He goes on. Let's go back to Colossians 1. It says, The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice he begins this by saying a mystery. A mystery is something God spoke during Old Testament times, but has only been understood fully through the appearance of his son, Jesus Christ. Fully for this age, that is. And what has been revealed to the saints? Question, what, what is that? He says the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. Clearly, it was hidden before the flood. I mean, those people got destroyed because of the wretchedness and the wickedness of just going off on their own, which always happens. But it came to a point, 1,440 years, 44 years after the flood, by the gen- figuring the generations, in chapter 5, after the flood just wiped out that whole entire generation except for eight people. Noah's wife, his three sons, and their wives. But it was hidden before the flood. It was hidden before the giving of the Lord so far as in the written word. And yet we are told in the book of Job, the old, regarded as the oldest book in the Bible, it is there we read in verse in chapter 19 and verse 25, Job speaking, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, the one who buys back my life. He lives. And at last, at the last, as talking towards the resurrection, he will take his stand on the earth. He will take his stand on the earth. Even before the scriptures were written, God's people receive the word, a word received by the word of mouth and the witness of the Holy Spirit, the need and reality of God-given salvation. That was given by word of mouth and by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you do not believe that that's true in those past ages, whatever your belief system may tell you, I want you to consider carefully the words of Paul. And I quote from 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 19. And when he's speaking here, I want you to consider, you know, who has been throughout the ages, including Job, just as one, you know, we're not even talking about Enoch, who walked with God so closely that he was taken up to heaven. You know, we're we're talking about, you know, the man Job, who's living before the law, um, and certainly the writing of Scripture and the prophets, and, and he said he knew about his Redeemer. And in Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 19, says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, speaking for God, and the understanding of those who have understanding, I will confound. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the dis- debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. What did he just say? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, there is an earthly, demonic wisdom, and it sounds good, but did not come to know God. God was pleased, well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The message is everything. It's not who you are. It's not what sect or religion you belong to. It's about the message. Every denomination, every religion has its message. Men can say they're all the same and they have the same God, but they don't. They conflict with one another drastically. Whether it's Christian or Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever it might be, there are drastic differences in what they believe, how creation happened, all of it, all of it. Certainly salvation's part. Unregenerate men, no matter how religious they may be, just can't get it. That's why relying upon the teachings of the religious, when they outweigh the Holy Scriptures, is so dangerous. I mean, where is your faith? Where does it lie? Is it lie on tradition and, and the religion and the, the men who are teaching the religion or solely on the part of the Holy Scriptures? Well, you're going to say, well, you, you know, you go back to that. That's, that could be true. But at an individual level, I'm talking to an individual now, I hope. I'm not speaking to a, a religion. I'm speaking to you, no matter what religion you may consider yourself to be part of, I'm speaking to an individual and you personally, I'm talking to you personally. Is your faith and your hope so on the, on the person and word of the living God as he's declared it to be? Or is it on men? That's just a question. Beware of any man that points to his religion as the salvation of your soul. If he's throwing the word, whatever it might be, Protestant, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever the word is, that describes his religion, if he's always recounting that word, beware. We can look at certain groups and know that they are leading people to hell. We can't do that. We should never look to a group and refer to it as the way of salvation. I mean, I'm including every group. I'm not including saying that I'm above all of those. I'm not saying that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying there's a way, and Jesus said, I'm the way. Now, if you want to put something added onto that, then there's a curse that says anyone who adds to the teachings of this word, I'll add to you all the curses found in the book. So if you want to add onto Jesus as the way, that's what you're doing. Some group, whatever the name might be. Jesus imparts eternal life. Every group, no matter how good, an individual church may be. And there are good individual churches. But the, all groups will have churches in that particular sect that lead people to hell. You can rest, your, you can rest on that. We're not looking at groups. We're looking at a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is, for specific individuals who are born again, they can 
possess within their heart the person of Jesus Christ who will lead them to glory. There is no other way. There is no group. From 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read this. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. That includes religions because they lead the way. When speaking about God, not politicians, rulers of religions. Seven, verse seven, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of our glory, to our glory, before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. He was speaking in his time. You can say that in every single age. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They missed it. They tried to crucify Christ and get rid of the Son, and the problem would go away. Wrong. Verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Not the religion, him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Spirit does. The Spirit does. Not human carnality, not human wisdom, not human brain power, You know, not the efforts of the human soul in any way. It is God who searches, the Spirit of God that searches the depths of God. You need to have Christ as center in your heart and your life and your mind and your emotions and your will where you have yourself, probably based on a religion. Back to Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. Saint, that's a holy person that's separated by God for a holy purpose, and that's God's purpose, not man's. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generation, but has now been manifested, revealed to his saints. Did Paul label a group there? Yes, he called them saints. And we understand that those saints are not grouped together with a name. They've gone through ages and ages, individual people. Enoch, what group was he a part of? There was no Jew. There was no religions for the first 1,440 years, and yet you had your Methuselahs, and you had your Noahs, and you had your Enochs, and you had individual people, like every age does, with nothing assigned to them as far as a group. Why are you assigning yourself to a group if you are? Don't do it. You love your church, you love your pastor, you love your people, good, love them. Don't love the group name. These separated by the meaning of the world from the world and its religions. All of the people that Paul are talking about were separated. 
from the world, from its philosophy. And they were separated to, to them. We are told God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you have Christ within you, you have everything you need. You can't get any more individualistic and not group-minded than Christ in you. And that makes the difference. He is the one that makes the difference. There is no hope of glory apart from Christ in you. He says that. Is Christ in you is my question. Is Christ in you? That's the whole point to this verse and this message. And we're going to turn a corner here in a minute. But before we do, you know, in 1967, I'm part of a major religion. And I'm sitting in class and the teacher's saying, you know, if you're part of this group, if you're part of this religion, you're going to heaven. That's where you're going. And if not, you're not. That's what she said. And I thought to myself, I am so glad I am what I am, that I'm part of this group of people. Well, I found myself in in my bed not long after that saying prayers and thinking to myself, and one of the things I thought to myself was, you know, I don't really know there's a God. I mean, I'm not certain that there's a God, and if there is one, I'm not sure that I'm going to go to heaven. And the only thing that I could think of to say in that moment, the only thing that would cross my mind was, I don't know if there's a God, but if there is, please help me to go to sleep because I don't want to think about this anymore. I mean, I was scared out of my mind. I don't know what come over me except I know that it was the Holy Spirit. And then I was listening to a preacher on TV, and it didn't matter, it didn't matter what the pre- who the preacher was. It doesn't matter. That does not matter so far as this story is concerned. What matters is the words that he spoke so convicted, brought conviction upon my soul, which was by the work of the Holy Spirit, that I knew I was a sinner and I was going to hell. Now, now, now I went from not knowing to knowing. I mean, I didn't realize it in those early moments of that. that but I, what I did know is I was, I was a sinner and I was going to hell. Now there was a hell. And, and alternately, they were not thinking about it. There was a God and, and there was the goodness but I just was so convicted, all I could see was my sin. And I got up from the couch, and I went to my bedroom, and I shut the door, and I looked up to the ceiling, and I said, God, help me. I mean, I knew there was a God, because I knew there was a hell, and I knew I was sinful, and I knew there was sin. I mean, it just became perfectly clear. Why? The Holy Spirit became, came upon me. He was doing a work in my heart. He was, he was changing me. He was doing it, and it became real. And the Holy Spirit brought Jesus Christ into my heart that day, and I became a born-again, regenerate Christian. And I didn't have anything to do with it. And I mean nothing. Apart from that work, I couldn't exercise faith. I didn't have any. This is God-given faith. He gave me the faith to believe, just like he gave me the heart to understand. He gave me the heart to believe. He gave me the heart to see. With hope and with faith, it became real. Now the corner we're going to turn here is right now I'm going to start to look at the coming glory because this is the hope of glory. What is it, Christ in you, the hope of glory? What is the hope? What is the glory? We know the hope and the faith is in Christ, but what's the glory? On the way to Gethsemane, Jesus is on his way to fall down on the ground for three hours. Three separate times he gets up and he tells his disciples, 
You know, couldn't you wait with me an hour? Couldn't you wait with me an hour? Couldn't you wait with me an hour? I mean, three times. He's just, he's bleeding. I mean, he's, he's so taken with the passion of the moment, with the, the horrendous experience that he's looking is about to take place. And he's God. He, he gets it. He knows what's coming. Because he's the one in, in, in the oneness of God that's dishing it out. The Father in the person of God the Father is dishing it out on, on he's pouring it out on God the Son. And I, I can't explain that. No one can. It doesn't matter. But he's God and he, and he really gets it and he knows what he's facing and he's, he's bleeding. I mean, his pores are opening up and it says as great drops of blood falling to the ground. He's bleeding from, from the, the emotion the, his, in his humanity and in, and in his godness, in his divinity. He knows what's coming and he's feeling it. God feels. We're made in his image. And in John 17, uh, on his way to that, he stops in the middle of the night. It's dark and they got torches. Get the picture in your mind. And just a little bit is lit and there's shadows more than light. And, and he's standing there and he looks up to heaven and he starts to pray. And towards the end of that prayer, he says this, quote, The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them speaking to the apostles, looking down further than the apostles and all who had come, become Christians after them, believers, so that they may be one just as we are one. And you can read the rest of John 17 if you don't know it well and understand he's speaking down the generations. The glory, and the glory is revealed holiness. And the way We know that from Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is standing at the temple doorway. He can't go in. The train of God is filling the temple, and he sees a vision of God on a throne, and he's standing at the door, and the glory is like there in that place where he can't go. And he says, I'm undone. I'm a man, a sinful man. I'm a man of unclean lips among people of unclean lips. He's aware of his sin, and he's undone by it. And in that moment, there's... There's angels, and those angels are saying one to another, holy, holy, holy. To magnify the word holiness, let's focus on what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God, the world is filled with your... He doesn't say... They don't say holiness. They say, the world is filled with your glory. The world is filled. So God is holy, and when it becomes revealed to the world, it is, it's glory. That what? What's, what's the glory to, that God is holy? He made the world from nothing. He didn't make it from himself. Only the begotten Son of God comes from God eternally. He's always been. Both have always, all the Trinity has always been. They're in an eternal state. Can't comprehend it. Don't try it's just taking the word of God from what it says. And that God is holy. He's separate. Not just when it became sinful, but even when it was good. God is separate from that. He made it separate. He is holy. He is a consuming fire. We're not. He is good in every way that you could imagine. Righteous. All his ways are right. 
good. He's merciful and he's kind and he's gracious and, and, and he's forgiving. And he, and, he, and he also knows what is good and he'll burn up anything that isn't. All of that is the holiness of God. And when it's revealed, it's glory. So what he says in these verses 22 and 23 is the glory which you have given me, speaking to the Father, the glory which you have given me, Jesus speaking, I have given to them so that they may be one. Um, no religions, no sects, no cults, no isms. One. Now he's on his way to his death and I've already described what's going on in the way. I haven't described the cross. But he's going to die the most horrendous death possible not just physically, but in a way we can't conceive because God is going to be beat for an eternal punishment on every person for whom he died. Now that's serious. The wrath we have never experienced. For those of us saved, we'll never experience it. For those who experience it for eternity, they will experience it for eternity. He experienced it for eternal eternity because he's eternal. Can't comprehend it. Don't try. Just let it be what it is. But he himself has been given glory, and the glory that he has been given, which is holiness, revealing the holiness, he said that the world may know that you loved me. What's love? Love is giving yourself for another. When we give ourselves to Christ, we deny, we fail to associate with ourselves as if we were God, as if we were the center of the universe, as if we're the, the author and source of truth. We're not. I mean, go down the list. Everything we take in our own hands, in our own minds, in our own emotions, in our own decisions that make us at the center of things, it's sin. And we're replacing God. And the person who hates God lives a life of that. A converted sinner, a regenerate sinner, a born-again sinner becomes a saint and is given a new heart and begins to live for God. And that person can do away with worldly things and can turn from a religion and can turn to the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. And does, we do our whole lives through. Not to perfection, but the new direction. But let's not miss this so that the world may know that you loved them just as you loved me. So after we become one, that we may be one, and that's love for the brethren. Just as we are one, believe me, there's no division between father and son, and there are no disagreements at all. It's no let's get along to get along, and there's you know primary things that we can believe, and then there are secondary things that it's okay to disagree with. He's not saying that here. And, and I know that we're not going to be perfect. You know what, but let's strive for that. 
because Jesus bled and died and, and Jesus went to a cross that we can't comprehend. He suffered an eternity we can't comprehend. And he's giving us what to do here. He's saying that we may be one. Just as we are one. And we will be in eternity, but it starts now. So the world may know you love them just as you love me. The Father loved them just as you loved me. How does the Father love Jesus, the Son? He doesn't love him with unconditional love. There's no condition necessary because the Son is equal to the Father in everything, and he is the eternal God, and he's the one I've been talking about is completely righteous. How could God, the Father, love us just as he loves Jesus, the Son, God, himself. There's only one answer, and that's identification. You find it in Romans 5. If you're not familiar, read through Romans 5. It carries through the rest of the New Testament, really. But Romans as a central piece, a nutshell, so to speak, in which the whole Bible, you find all the theology crammed tightly into that book. If you don't get Romans, you don't get it. You know, in, the, in that Romans 5, there's two races. There's the race in Adam and the race in Christ. In, in Adam, all men sin, and in Christ, all men who believe in him are raised in newness of life. There it is. It's identification. So when he sees Jesus, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he sees us. It's that kind of identification. You know, when people get to heaven, we're told that there's pearly gates. You know what a pearl is? A pearl is something gets in, some piece of sand, some microorganism, something that crawls into the oyster and it begins to eat away at the oyster. And the oyster secretes a substance that then becomes the pearl. And it surrounds the pearl so that you can't see. It's around, the pearl is the substance surrounding the irritation or the organism um, to keep it separate from, the, just think of the picture here, to keep it separate from the rest of the oyster, the living part in the shell, and it becomes a perfectly round, perfectly uh, perfect pearl until eventually the irritation is actually dissolved away. I mean, get that. Until all you get is the pearl. You get this beautiful pearl out of an irritation in an oyster, which is a picture. You enter into the city. What do you enter into? You're entering into the work of Christ who dissolves away the sin in the work on the cross. And then in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 17, Jesus, in the same priestly prayer, high priestly prayer, he says this, quote, Righteous Father, I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. He's going to continue to make it known in us, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here's that love again, which is in the Son, the love wherewith you loved me may be in them. There's a little change. Here he goes from, so that the world may know that you love them just as you 
loved me. And now he says, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. So the them are possessing the love. The irritation will eventually be completely removed and it will only be perfect love beyond all sinfulness or selfishness or idolatry. Revelations 25, as we come down to, toward the end of this message, says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So there's a resurrection that takes place after the tribulation period at the front end of the millennial kingdom where Christ reigns and rules with all his saints on top instead of on the bottom as it's been for the last uh, 4,400 years after the flood, meaning 6,000 in total. You've had uh, men ruling and killing and waging war and causing all kinds of grief and sorrow and pain. Now you're going to have a thousand years, but before that thousand years, there's a resurrection from the dead. And all the saints are raised. The rest go into hell to be held there until the final white throne judgment of God. And that is the first resurrection. There's a second resurrection. It's important to know that. The old, now the, the old passes away and a new heaven and an earth at the end of that millennial kingdom take place. And in Revelations 21 and verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and this is at the point where the new heavens and the new earth being done away with, the old is being done away with, the new is coming, the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, and uh, the bride is being revealed, but the only thing revealed in Revelation to us at this point is not the bride, it's the, the new Jerusalem, which pictures and symbolizes, just like the pearly gates, the bride, and what the son has done for his bride, and the, how the father has planned to present to his son the bride. It's just the love of God is unbelievable. And the humility of God is unbelievable. And in this section, it's about the bride, but it's, it's only seen to us now at this time in the New Jerusalem. There's a revelation that can only take place at that time. It hasn't taken place yet. And it's not revealed in the Word of God. There's a purpose for the timing. So in verse 3, I've been wondered for decades, literally, why doesn't God use the word in? Why does he use the word among? And I'm a really thick-headed Italian from Brooklyn who just is really slow to think at times. And in my slowness, I never just stopped and will let me uncover what the word among means. But a couple of months ago, I did. I looked at the word among and took a study to myself, and I, I looked at it uh, in the Greek. And the, the word among is mentioned three times, one verse, like God is overemphasizing this, among men, he will dwell among them. You know, they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. It's not 
the Lamb is referring to walking among them. It's referring to God being among them. And uh, this word actually found in the Greek is the word meta, a, prop, a preposition. And it actually is after and with. And it implies a, a change. And it focuses on afterward. Afterward. What? Afterward. And, and uh, the, the Greek scholars say it results after an activity. Meta looks forward, toward, toward the after effect. Now, it, it also, it, it can, the change that takes place, the after effect that takes place, it results of an action which is only defined by the context. What's the context? The old heaven and earth go out of existence. Oof, just like you see things in movies with special effects and it's just gone. You know? Just like that, oh, this is reality. This isn't a movie. You know, the, the um, lake of fire is there and uh, the lost are cast into the lake of fire along with all the demons that have been there and come out, some come out for a little bit at the end of the millennium. millennium. And all of this literal, no reason nor can we take it anything but literal. Why? Because you, you can't come to it any other way. It's not a mystery. It's not spiritualized. It's not some, you know, <clears throat> it's not a metaphor or a, in, in this section. And it, it's definitely, you know, not a story behind a story. It's not an allegory. It's, uh, it is what it is. And this specific word right here is talking about the context this context of the world going out of existence and then a new one being created. This is the second resurrection. Where the bodies aren't going to be raised from this earth. It's going to be rep, uh, they're going to be raised from the new earth. Whatever it's made of. Seriously, that's going to be dirt. It's going to be something that is uh, of God, but in a much more substantial way. I'm pretty certain of this, and I'll tell you why in a second. So our context is the new heaven and new earth. It's the resurrection that takes place. The saints will go from perfection to the after effect of salvation when sanctification is completed by glorification. There's a difference between these two. And if you want to look at it, you look at Romans chapter 8. And towards the end of that, there's this glorification that's promised to take place. And the difference, sanctification is, you know, from level to level. It's from glory to glory, you know, as beheld by the Spirit of the Lord. That, this, that we're becoming more holy like Him. Glorification is something else. It's going to another level. It's going to this place that Jesus is alluding to in His high priestly prayer. It's, it's about the love that's being poured out in the hearts of the people. It's a completion. It's a, it's a growth like going from being, being in the womb to, to getting outside and becoming a person and maturing to complete maturity as, a, as an elder. That's kind of the... Right? We're in the womb. Okay? We're not even breathing, living, thinking. You know, we're alive in the womb completely from, from conception, but from conception to birth, that's a, that's a different condition. It's a different existence of life. All life, but it's, it's completeness that's being talking about here. As incomprehensible as it is, 
A day is coming when the saints will stand in the glory of the Lord. Will stand in the glory of the Lord due to the after effect of our glorification. The verse I'm looking at is Revelation chapter 22 and verse 6. And it says, quote, And there will no longer be any night. See, the heavens are done away. There will no longer be any night. There's no darkness at all, no. It's all gone. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. No sun. That was let, let there be light, and it was that, that light was eventually attached to, to the sun, just as light is attached to all the stars. God created light when he said, let there be light. He didn't create the sun. The sun wasn't created until an, another day. He created light. Well, now there's no more created light. All created light is gone. It doesn't exist anymore in this new heaven and new earth. They will have no need of a light or a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them. We're standing in the light of God's glory. The light that Isaiah couldn't enter into, the, the light that Moses, who spoke to God face to face, metaphorically in a picture, um, mouth to mouth, it says, as friend speaks to friend, and that's the point. God is speaking to Moses face to face, mouth to mouth, person to person, friend to friend. But when Moses asked to see his glory, God says, I'm going to stick you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. You're going to, I'm going to pass by, and you're going to get to see my back. And what he's referring to there, he's not referring to the side of God that's righteous and holy and a consuming fire. He's speaking to the mercy and grace and forgiveness, and love, and compassion that allows us to exist in this universe as it is. Now that's all done, it's all changed. There's an aftermath. There's an after effect, and it's called glory. And that glory, the saints will live, and holy angels, probably carried in with us. I'm not sure about that part, but I... I am sure about us having no need of the sun, no artificial light, but we're actually illuminated by the glory of God. Think of it. We who have trusted in Christ, not religion, we who have trusted in Christ will be at home in the burning light of God's righteousness. Believe me, if it were not for Christ, and that's some human philosophy or wisdom, if it were not for Christ, we would not stand glorified in that way. At that moment, and that moment alone, will we know what predestined to the conformity of God's beloved Son, Romans 8, means in glory. All things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What's the purpose? The purpose that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what it says in Romans a twenty-eight twenty-nine, conformed completely, like the pearl, to the image of his son. There's no sin. It's, it's not only dissolved and done away in sanctification, this is glorification. I think it's probably hard to differentiate between sanctification and glorification because so little of it I've ever heard preached. I don't know that I've ever heard it preached. Somewhat. I must have heard some sermons about glory in some ways. But glorification is different. 
It's, it's different. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. You know, it's like you've got to look into the mirror. You can't look into God's face. But you look into something that's reflecting who we are. We're seeing ourselves. And there's a glory because we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. We see Jesus as a man, and behind that man, behind that body, behind that flesh, there's the glory of God, which is not revealed. It blinded Saul on the road to, Tars- to, on the road to Tarsus. Just as from the Lord the Spirit. This glory that we're being changed to, from, into is from the Lord the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus into our hearts, those of us who believe. So when, Jesus, when Paul says something like, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in and to us. And that word can, re, can mean in or to in Greek. The, the sufferings can't be compared to that glory. Not conformed like we are now. Not these bodies. Not resurrected bodies that look better than this. We're talking about a glorified body from a new earth. Have no clue what that looks like. There's, there's no vision of it. There's no thought of it. No word of it. Just like there's no word and description of the bride. Other than we see in the new Jerusalem, the city, which the city is no more the bride then a building of bricks is the church. The church is people, individual people making up the bride of Christ. The building is a building. The city, glorious as it has to be. And if you want to listen, listen to a description, go to John MacArthur preaching on Revelation 22. Get the description of the city. He does a magnificent job of describing, as he always does, the meaning of God's word. Listen to it. Think about it. But it's a city. It's not the bride. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, the message, which is the glory that we can't comprehend. But we recognize that it's built on the sufferings of Christ. We recognize that Jesus suffered and he died. He died on our behalf. If it were not for the carrying of our sins, Jesus would never die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin, your word declares it. He never sinned. He never had a thought in his mind. He never had an emotion in his heart. He he never had a decision that was made. He never had an attitude in his spirit. He never had a motive that had the slightest, small something you'd need with a microscope of sin in it. Zero. Nothing in him was ever sinful. We can't say that in anything. We can't say that anything that we think or feel or decide the motives of our heart are ever completely pure. We know the Puritan, I forget who it was, who said the best prayer he ever prayed had enough sin in it to condemn the world. 
I seriously doubt that that's false. Even though we know that we've been given a new heart and a new direction and that our, our heart is set for heaven if Jesus is the way in our heart and in our soul. If he's part of who we are, if he's changed us into something new and that old things are passing away and all things are in process and are becoming new as we're in being sanctified by the blood we know, Lord, if that's true, then it's only because of the cross. It's only because perfection is in us, in a, in a person, by the Holy Spirit. But it's not yet completed, even in sanctification, yet in glory. We know, Lord, we're going to rule and reign. And when the saints are sitting on the judgment seats, and when righteousness is reigning, then the, the law of God will be carried out to the letter. And men will see for a thousand years what life was meant to be like. And yet many, many, many will still not believe. Oh, that God, I know you will have mercy on many in that thousand years because the light revealed in that thousand years will be worse even than now because now we, we look through a glass darkly. But during the millennium, it's going to be much more clear. Woe unto the people who live during that time. Because as, as light continues to increase, and the book and the Bible have been given, and the, the saints have lived in, in the world and have pro professed the true gospel, the authentic gospel, and the light has been revealed, men have been held to more account. And so, Lord, we pray for the salvation of the lost, and I pray for anyone hearing this message that it might just touch their heart. They might see the glory and that they, if they don't have it, they would desire it and give their lives, call sin, sin, and be born again. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.